I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, June 21st, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, how one man in a billion bees can help keep food on your table. And BBC's Science in Action takes a... Look, takes a look at major advancements in medical science to cure and treat AIDS 30 years after the first symptoms appeared in men in the U.S. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. This is yet another story about a famous star that acts as if he is in the center of the universe and has gone through periods of intense outbursts, but recently appears to be calming down and may even take some time out to rest and recover. In this case, the star is our very own sun, the center of our solar system. And though it's not exactly going into rehab like some more earthbound stars, it may be starting a long, calm period. The sun has an 11-year cycle of solar activity that goes from quiet times with no sunspots or outbursts to periods of high sunspot activity with lots of violent storms of plasma and high-energy particles. These can cause spectacular aurora, disrupt satellites, and even affect electronics on Earth. The sun just finished a calm minimum part of its cycle and should increase in activity again for a peak in the year 2013. But recent research announced at last week's meeting of the American Astronomical Society's Solar Physics Division indicates that the next few solar cycles will have very weak or no peaks in activity. Well, what could that mean for us? Lower solar activity would make it safer for astronauts and satellites by decreasing the solar outbursts that produce high levels of radiation. Some media reports have claimed that this decrease in solar activity could reverse the effects of global warming. This assertion is largely based on the assumption that the previous period of decreased solar activity called the Maunder Minimum in the late 1600s was the cause for something called the Little Ice Age, which was a period of time with particularly cold winters in Europe. However, no causal connection between the Maunder Minimum and the Little Ice Age has been shown, and other evidence, such as localized effects of the weather and increased in volcanic activity point to other causes. Although there are correlations between solar activity and global temperatures, the effects are comparatively small and have diverged since the 1980s when global temperatures have significantly increased in spite of decreased solar activity. Researchers estimate this drop in solar activity could temporarily decrease the global temperatures by less than half a degree which is much less than the 5 to 7 degrees of warming by the end of the century predicted by many climate models. Even for landlocked Coloradoans, this report might alarm you. The sea level of the Atlantic coast is rising faster than at any time in the past 2,000 years. What's more, there's a consistent link between changes in global mean surface temperature and sea level. That's according to new research by an international group of scientists from the U.S., Germany, and Finland. The team of researchers provided the first continuous sea level reconstruction for the past 2,000 years, and they compared variations in global temperature to changes in sea level during this time period. They found that sea level was relatively stable from 200 BC to 1000 AD. 
during a warm climate period beginning in the 11th century, known as the medieval climate anomaly, sea level rose by about half a millimeter per year for 400 years. Then came a second period of stable sea level associated with the cooler period, known as the Little Ice Age. It persisted until the late 19th century, but since then, sea level has risen by more than two millimeters per year on average. That's the steepest rate in more than 2,100 years. To reconstruct sea level, the research team used microfossils called foraminifera, preserved in sediment cores from coastal salt marshes in North Carolina. The group estimated the age of these cores by using radiocarbon dating and other techniques. The research shows that the reconstructed changes in sea level during the past millennium are consistent with, glo with past global temperatures and can be described using a model that relates the rate of sea level rise to global temperature. The study was conducted by scientists at, from the University of Pennsylvania, Penn State, Yale, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and elsewhere. It was published yesterday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You're listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. In this week's BBC Science in Action, John Stewart explores some major advancements in AIDS-related medical science. Here's John Stewart. 30 years ago this week, the first patient was identified with a condition that was to become known as AIDS. The original report from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention in the United States detailed five young gay men in Los Angeles, California, with some strange symptoms. In the three decades that have followed, HIV-AIDS is estimated to have killed 30 million people worldwide. Global research efforts continue, and they've led to some amazing advances in medical science. Yeah, this is our virus lab. Um, so you can see through the window, um, people wear um, masks and eye protection, uh, gowns, double gloves, um, to prevent the virus from uh, infecting them. That's Professor Jerome Zach showing me around the laboratories at the University of California, Los Angeles AIDS Institute. He's developing new ways of eradicating HIV from the body and explained some of the cutting-edge research that's being done. The newest idea is to try to eradicate the virus. And the idea there is to try to flush the virus out of the reservoirs where it hides. This is in the body? Yes, this is in the body. So we, there's various hiding places where the virus can reside, even while in therapy. The reason being that the drugs don't work once the virus has inserted itself into the DNA of the host cell. And some cells are protected against the effect of the drug and will harbor the virus in an inactive state for a long time. And one idea is to somewhat activate the virus so that it can slightly express its proteins, and then it would be de detectable by the immune system or by other um, approaches that we can use to attack it. So really what the idea would be is to tickle the virus so that it peeks its head out of hiding and then you can attack it. And that approach is starting to gain favor experimentally. It's not ready for prime time yet, but many labs, including ours, are, are looking into this. There has been w one patient cured of HIV infection. This is the, the patient known as the Berlin patient. Can you describe to us how that came about? So this patient had a malignancy along with HIV disease. And so he had cancer, effectively? Yes, he had cancer. And the treatment of that cancer required a bone marrow transplant. Now, there's a small subset of people that have a genetic change that eliminates one type of receptor 
that allows the virus to infect cells. And these patients are, for the most part, normal. So what was done for this patient is a matched bone marrow donor that would match the patient and not be rejected happened to have this mutation that would prevent them from being infected. And the bone marrow cells were transplanted into the Berlin patient. They then matured into blood cells, which could not be infected by the virus. And essentially, between the treatment needed to clean the patient of his own marrow before the transplant and the transplanted cells basically resulted in in what looks like a cure. So he was effectively given an immune system transplant from somebody who had some natural immunity, but from this tiny subset of people who exist naturally in the population who have some immunity. Yes. So a bone marrow transplant basically replaces all the blood-forming machinery in the body. So by getting a bone marrow transplant, you would replace your red cells, all your white cells, everything, even some cells that are of blood origin that migrate into the brain. And if you could eliminate infected cells in the body and then add stem cells that are protected from infection, the net result would be you would protect the resulting immune system from the virus. And that's what happened in the Berlin patient. So is that approach an approach that could be used more widely for other people? And actually what it does, it it hints to a better approach. The problem with what was done with the Berlin patient is there's very, very few donors that have this mutation that would prevent infection. So as a realistic treatment, it probably wouldn't work. However, there are people trying to use molecular biology and gene therapy techniques to mimic that, where they can eliminate the gene for that receptor from a patient's own stem cells, reintroduce those back into the patient, and protect the immune system. Several groups are working along those lines, and I actually have high hopes for that type of a strategy, at least some approach for that type of strategy to work in the future. And thanks to John Stewart of BBC's Science in Action for that report. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. That may not sound like music to your ears, but if you enjoy almonds, peaches, pears, strawberries, just about every fruit, and of course honey, you might at least care about the bees making that sound. The problem is, the buzzing sound is getting fainter, as bees are suffering from a perfect storm of maladies. These days, beekeepers are struggling more than ever in a seemingly hopeless quest to save bees, and in the process to save our food supply. Hannah Nordhaus, a Boulder journalist, has written a book about one man's passionate, heroic, and quirky effort to keep the art of beekeeping and bees themselves from going extinct. She's in the studio now to talk about her new book. It's called The Beekeeper's Lament, How One Man and Half a Billion Honeybees Help Feed America. And who knew? It's National Pollinator Week. So Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Susan. So I want to first ask, does that sound, after spending so much time with this beekeeper and his bees and gazillion other bees, does that sound like music to your ears? It does. It's a good sound to hear. And um, as you become aware of the problems facing bees and beekeepers, every time you see a bee and hear it buzz, it makes you happy. <laughs> Even when you were stung, as apparently you were for the first time? Um, I wasn't happy <laughs> when I was stung. I uh, 
it hurt, and I wasn't aware that it was going to hurt so much. Um, I had been stung by a yellow jacket before, but I was never stung by a honeybee until I started researching this book. And my first sting was on my eye. And, oh, um, not good location. N- yeah, and I felt very insulted. <laughs> and, um, and it hurt. And then I was stung on my scalp, and that hurt too. And, um, and I probably have a healthier fear of honeybees than I did before, but I also um, appreciate them. <laughs> Immensely. So initially, as kind of a bee novice, how did you come to writing a story about this particular beekeeper? Because it's much more than the problems the bees face. Yeah, so um, as someone who wasn't into bees and had never kept bees, the appeal of this book, and this beekeeper in particular, was... um, was this guy, John Miller, who has 10,000 beehives. 10,000? 10,000. He actually has 11,000 now. He had 10 when I wrote the book. Um, And he's had as many as 14,000, but they keep dying off, so he keeps building back up. So he's one of the biggest, I take it. He is one of the biggest, but he's not the biggest by any means. There's a guy named Richard Aidey who's based in South Dakota, but has bee yards all over the country. And he has, last I checked, 80,000 hives. (laughs) So you came to John Miller. So I came to John Miller. I met him while I was writing an article about an, a honey-based energy gel called Honey Stinger, which is you know one of those gels you use if you're running marathons or doing a long bike ride. And um, he is one of the owners. He's a marathoner himself. And I interviewed him for this article. And This was um, in High Country News? No, this was in Delicious Living, which is also a Boulder-based um, natural foods magazine. And... I had no idea that there were these guys who had thousands of hives and big semi-trucks and trucked them all over the country, pollinating crops and making honey, um, and that most of their income came from pollinating crops. And nor did I know that many of these crops wouldn't produce fruit or nuts uh, without the help of honeybees. Really fascinating. And it begs the question because, you know, most of us learned about the birds and the bees, so to speak, in first grade, but not really. Could you give some distillation of how pollination works and what makes these bees so important? Yeah. So, um, so over many millennia, bees and flowers evolved this symbiotic relationship where flowers are very pretty. They emit nectar and bees like nectar. So bees go to the flowers, they smell the nectar, they go in, they get the nectar, and they also collect pollen while doing so. Um, Then they go to the next flower, and the pollen that brushed off on them at the first flower brushes off to the next one, and that pollinates the flowers. So so the bees and the the flowers are doing favors to each other. Um, The bees are bringing the future, the reproduction from flower to flower, and the flowers provide sustenance for the bees, which they bring back to their hives. And uh, they have honey and pollen that they feed to the young. And, and so they are ensuring their own future as well. So for those who've been sneezing all season, maybe it helps us appreciate not just the bees, but the pollen. Yeah. They're transferring. <laughs> as someone with seasonal allergies, I, um, I, I appreciate. <laughs> so give a sense of the scale of it. I mean, I think you said in your book that the bees pollinate one-third of the fruits and vegetables we eat? I mean, they really are a keystone of our food chain, our they, food system, right? They really are, yeah. That, so they, they pollinate over 90 fruits and vegetables, including all the vine crops, all the pit fruits, so peaches, cherries, apples. Um, they pollinate lettuce, onions, canola. So a, a lot of stuff and a lot of the really good food, too. So um, there, there is this, this myth out there that if bees disappeared, we'd all die. That's probably not true. But our diet would be 
a lot less fun. <laughs> and it clearly is not backyard beekeeping, and it hasn't been for decades. Give a sense of this guy, John Miller, and sort of the industrial pollination machine, you know, how, yeah. it, how it churns. So as modern agriculture has evolved, you know, they've got these huge crops now, and they're, they plant one thing, and so monocrops. And when you have a big crop like that, you can't just have natural pollinators that live on the side of the crop because these things bloom for maybe three weeks of the year, and then once the flowers fell, fall off, there's nothing for pollinators to eat. So, um, so what's evolved to, to pollinate these crops is beekeepers bringing their bees to their crops. Um, and the biggest crop of all for, for modern beekeepers is almonds. Um, mm-hmm. Almonds are, are, cannot pollinate themselves. On, they don't pollinate on the wind. They're, the pollen's too heavy. They require pollination from pollinators. And um, all, the, most, all the commercial almond production in the U.S. And, and 80% in the world is in the Central Valley of California, in this 400-mile strip of just incredible agricultural land. And there are 750,000 acres of almonds there. Hmm. No way that the native pollinators, if there were many left and there aren't, could pollinate this amount of crops. If you go, I, I visited John Miller during the almond bloom, and we drove to the top of a hill. And if you look around, it's just pink almond petals hmm. from horizon to horizon. It's amazing, you know, from the mountains to whatever you can see off towards the sea. Beautiful. Um, it is beautiful. It's yeah. Most extreme. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, and it's, it's, it's quite horrifying in a way. Um, so the only way that they, and it's a very profitable crop. Um, and the only way that they can get these trees to produce nuts is to bring in bees. So they bring in about two thirds of the nation's bees, pretty much every hive. They truck them in. So these are day labor bees. Yep. Or do they come in for a few days? No, they they come in for about a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they come in for a few weeks and, um, but they come from all over the country and they're trucked in on semis. John Miller, my, my beekeeper in the book, um, has these drop deck semis that carry 512 hives per wow. semi. He covers them in nets and trucks them in, places them at various locations throughout the almond orchards, and then leaves them for a few weeks. And then once the petals fall, there's nothing for the bees to eat, and they start spraying fungicides and um, herbicides and that sort of thing. So he has to get them out really quickly. So after that, he... Um, some of them he brings to the cherries in Stockton, California, and some he brings to apples in Washington State. Some he brings back to his home base in California to divide the hives and give them new queens so that he can replenish his supplies for the summer. And then he ends up taking them all up to North Dakota by, by today. June 21st is his, his goal to get them up to North good luck, Dakota good luck. Yeah, for the solstice when the... Um, sweet clover starts blooming, and then he makes honey all summer. And what's roughly the survival rate or the mortality rate of any given long migration like that? Um, like, do they lose a lot of the, the bees truck? in the process? I don't think they uh-huh. lose a ton, no. Um, they, they truck them at night and um, when the bees are dormant so that they are not flying around and they don't lose them by you know, putting them on the truck and then the bees have been out visiting flowers and have nowhere to go. Um, and they net them and they drive... Nonstop. <laughs> Not a job for the faint of heart. So no. you said there are only a few native ones left. Are you referring to the feral bees that in um, days long gone, they, they did the job? Well, I was referring to, to native pollinators, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily bees, but, uh, or not necessarily honeybees. There's right. also bumblebees, mason bees, blue orchard bees. There are some other 
things around um, butterflies, I believe, also pollinate mm-hmm. some birds. Um, but there just aren't enough. There never were enough for this kind of intense level of agriculture and and with sort of landscape changes of recent decades and pesticide use, there are even fewer than there used to be. Um, and then there are no native honeybees. They're, they are not native to the U.S., nor are most of the crops they pollinate. Um, they came over, the first honeybees came over um, on the boats with the colonists in the 1620s. Inadvertently. Uh, no, <laughs> they no. did not pay for their ticket. Uh, they they did not pay, but they were brought intentionally mm-hmm. because I mean at, at that point that was honey was the main sweetener that people used, and at, and farmers were well aware even then of how important they were for crop pollination. So I want to get to you know some of the big problems they're facing, but first I have this image that they are working so hard for us, but they're also kind of slave labor. And I think you mentioned in the book that actually they are being worked over time because they're going from one job to the next to the next. And how is that affecting them and how is it different from how they would be in a natural pollination setting? Um, Yeah, they, so honeybees are hard workers and they like to work. That's what they do. So it's not, um, you know, expecting them to do work is, is not mean to the bees necessarily <laughs> there but, won't be any class action suits you know i just you know someone so when they go to the almond orchards it's particularly um it's hard on the bees because they um they get sick they you know there's all these bees from all over the country they vector diseases and it's been compared to a giant brothel um in the book i compare it also to sort of conditions of a of a slave ship of, of conscription because they they're brought around they're they're kept together sort of a, or war barracks where everybody's together working hard, being overworked, overtaxed, and exchanging diseases. So um, it's not, they're not meant to travel this way, and, and they're not meant to, to go from monocrop to monocrop. I think nutrition is an issue that their beekeepers are increasingly aware of. It's hard on them. So you've got that challenge to begin with. And on top of that, this huge, still mysterious problem, right, of colony collapse disorder. Could you talk about that and how big of a problem it still is? Yeah, so um, colony collapse disorder is this weird syndrome that, that cropped up in late 2006, early 2007, where all the um, bees, just the adult bees just up and disappeared from the hive. And um, beekeepers had never seen, they, bees die in lots of ways, but they'd never seen them die in this particular way. Um, and it's still a mystery, uh, scientists have done lots of research. They have some suspicions as to various uh, fungi and viruses and perhaps nutrition and perhaps some involvement with pesticides that's causing it, but it doesn't seem to be one thing. Um, John Miller in the book compares it to death by a thousand paper cuts. Ouch. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap up. I know um, people can hear lots more and hear you read as well tomorrow night. Tell us where you're going to be and... I will be at the Tattered Cover in uh, Lodo, downtown Denver, at 7.30 tomorrow night, June 22nd. And um, this is the only reading where John Miller is going to be there, too. He, um, he is coming. I'm also reading at Boulder Bookstore on June 30th. June 30th. Also at 7.30. But if you want to see John Miller, come on Wednesday. He'll be down in Denver. And he sounds like a character. That's 1628 16th Street. So, Hannah Nordhaus, thanks so much for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. 
Susan Moran was producer for the show. Executive producer and engineer was Joel Parker. Special thanks to Bonnie Sue Hitchcock for gathering the sound of the bees from a beehive near Boulder. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wasinger produced it. Additional music from Fela Kuti. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the button to subscribe to our podcast. And if you are a musician, don't forget about our ongoing contest for the new theme song. The deadline to submit entries is July 12th. Check out the contest rules at howonearthradio.org slash contest. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. Joel Parker.